Good morning. All right. We are in our spiritual realm intro type thing that we're doing here because it is October and we want to take a stand and explain the spiritual world as we see it, not the way that it's being given to you in all avenues of culture right now. And so that first week, Bree talked, just a reminder, she talked about uh, the supernatural worldview of the early Hebrews and how that supernatural worldview, uh, it's very different than our materialistic uh, worldview. We are by nature materialist and I'm trying to change that personally. Um, we gave that a little, we talked about the cosmology, how they saw the stars, how they saw the, you know, this, this idea of heaven and earth. That's two spheres that at times would interact. Um, the second week, I, we talked about the good guys. We talked about those that we see uh, in the heavenly that, that serve Yahweh, or that there's this whole cast of characters that we see with that. And uh, it's not little babies with wings floating around. That's not what we get from the Bible. And uh, we kind of looked at that. We fleshed that out to see the, the living creatures and different things. So today I want to look at, we're going to look at the bad guys. We're going to try to figure out what the Bible actually is saying about these bad guys. And um, again, a lot of our, our spiritual realm overview, much of what we think in our heads, how we picture things, how we think we interact with them, a lot of it is based on uh, medieval thought. It's based on kind of the art of the medieval times, the teachings of the Catholic Church. Um, honestly, I think when it comes to talking about the angelic forces and the demonic forces, uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost kind of colors more of what we need as far as what we see in our pictures and stuff than, than we imagine. Um, and it's not very biblical, like the book isn't, but that's kind of what flushes out everything that we see. When we think of Satan, uh, what does our culture put in our minds when we think of Satan? They, they do the whole red seat, red shirt, red whatever. He's got the horns. He's got the pitchfork. He's got this and that going on. That's all based off of medieval stuff. That's not the Bible. The Bible doesn't give us that. There are some, there are some things with the horns. We'll talk about the horns today because the horns kind of pop up in, in ancient thought too. So what we're going to do today is I want to look at the bad guys. I want to look at it just through the, the scope of the Old Testament Second Temple Judaism and Old Testament. We're going to bridge that together. We're going to see that it's coherent. Um, a lot of people criticize the Bible and they say there's, you, don't, you don't see these things in the Old Testament, then all of a sudden you get Jesus and Jesus needs miracles. So Jesus is doing all this stuff with these bad guys that weren't existent in the Old Testament. That's just not true. That's just not true. And so, so we're going to look at that today. We're going to see what that actually looks like. I always like starting off with the C.S. Lewis quote, quote that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. This is just saying, stay in the middle, don't go crazy with this stuff, but at the same time, we do need to recognize that this stuff is existent. Um, the biblical story of existence, we've talked about this over the last couple of years. We've really been focusing on the biblical story. We have Adam's race. Adam's race has multiple problems. 
Adam's race was supposed to help with the chaos and disorder that is in the earth. He was going to make earth like heaven, like Eden. Um, Sin and death enter the picture, and we also have talked about how there are now spiritual enemies. Um, Jesus provides a solution to all three of these problems. And sometimes we, we just look at Jesus um, culturally. They look at Jesus as a self-help Jesus who takes care of sin and death. But Jesus also provides an answer for us for all of these spiritual issues. And uh, just a reminder that we are living in the already, but not yet. We are partially here with the kingdom, right? There are things that happen that are kingdom things that are happening, but it is not the full fruition of Jesus and his kingdom. We know that that's going to happen in the future, hopefully soon, but it's going to happen. We talked a little last week about how we just label everything angels and demons. That's not necessarily the case. Um, We want to move between that false binary because when we read people like Paul, uh, and we listen to things that Jesus says in the New Testament, we realize that there's, there's a lot more going on than just this. This, this is everything is an angel, everything is a demon. Uh, Christianity is not a life of selective supernatural. And what I mean by that is that we have people that are all, they're all good about a virgin birth and how miraculous that is. They're all good about the resurrection of Christ and how wonderful that is. But anything else that seems supernatural in the Bible, they just tend to put aside and say that it doesn't exist. That is supernatural selection. If that does that make sense? Like they're just picking what they think is good and miraculous and they're pushing out the other stuff that the Bible is saying. Um, the Bible is full of the supernatural. The Bible is full of some weird stuff and it has importance. We should know who's trying to mess with us. We should have an idea of plans and ideas. Uh, We should be able to understand, have knowledge of what power they have and how it is all less than the power in the kingdom of heaven. King Jesus is not a nickname. It is a title with supernatural supreme power. And sometimes we just just kick that around as Jesus is my king because he's my leader. No, the kingship comes with authority and power. And we need to recognize that there are levels of authority and power in the world. And then there is a level that is above all authority and power, and that is Jesus. And hopefully today we can see that some of these evil creatures have gained power, but their power does not compare to Yahweh. So we're going to start right away. We talked a little bit about Genesis last week when we talked about the angelic host, the divine council that sits with Yahweh in heaven. Uh, The next supernatural being that we get into is the serpent. We're just going to read through this and we can talk about this. Um, Most people have heard this before, so we'll just read through it really quickly. And now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of your eyes, eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was, that was the, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. First thing I want to point out about this is that, is this serpent fully lying? Was everything he said to them a lie? No. There is truth in what he is saying. Something to keep in mind when we, when we listen to things from other sources here on earth. Sometimes things sound good and there's truth in them, but it is not God's truth, if that makes sense. Okay. You will become like us knowing good and evil. That is exactly what happens. He was not lying about that. He was lying about the die thing. Going forward, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the, eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And then the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We can go on, but for the purpose of the serpent, we won't really need to go on. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So a couple of things that we would note here, um, going back to the serpent passage, there is this, this idea that he's going to be of the ground. You can look into the words there. Uh, you can actually translate that um, in the ground. And that's going to come into importance later in our understanding of, of who the serpent is and what the serpent does. Um, and you can look at that. It's already talking about the offspring of Satan, the offspring of man, and the fight that's going to ensue. Um, we'll come back to that. The second thing I'd like to say is, I noticed this the other day, and I thought it was interesting. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, and God made, Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Up until this point, we don't understand, we don't know if there is any death in the world, but certainly this seems almost like it's the first sacrifice. Those animals had to sacrifice their lives to clothe that sin. So it's just a really early shadowing of sacrifice and sin that's in the Bible. I thought that was, it's fun. Okay, the next part, when we talk about the Old Testament ideas of this figure called the serpent, gets in depth, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. So if you would be interested, I'm going to briefly mention some of this, but if you would be interested, um, I actually have charts that are going to evaluate the Genesis 3 story with language, along with Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. 
Um, and we'll talk about those passages in a little bit in regards to the serpent character in this rebel in the garden. Would you be willing to pass these out if people need them? Maybe like one per couple or something. Um, you could spend a whole sun, Sunday just kind of going through those, and I don't, we just don't have the time for that. What I do want to talk about, though, is the fact that when Ezekiel and Isaiah are both prophesying, um, they are prophesying and they are comparing these world leaders, king of Egypt, king of Tyre, uh, they're comparing them to this divine rebel who fell. And as you can read in the, in the chart, there's a lot of, there's a connotation about the Eden story. And so, so far, we just have the serpent who is evidently a divine being. And by divine, we mean a spiritual being. doesn't mean Yahweh God. Um, one of the stars that we've already talked about, the idea that the stars and the moon and the whole the representation of these spiritual beings. Um, and what we get from this is that he does want to be Yahweh. I mean, that is, that is his goal is to be worshipped and be like Yahweh. Um, We'll come back to that last. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll do that now. So with, with this idea of Baal equals Satan equals Zeus, Amon, we'll talk about that briefly here. Um, there is this idea, and this just mimics the fact that Satan wants to be the highest. He wants to be, he wants to be and I'll kind of tell you where we're at with this. Um, Baal, we've talked about before a little bit in here. Baal was the thunder god of the Philistines and other peoples of the, the region, the Ugarit. They, he is, he is the head God who came down. He's the lightning God. Okay. He's in charge. If you look at Baal there on the left, you see a very early picture. You got the horned head. You have the, the, the powerful staff, which they eventually turn into a pitchfork, but it's actually lightning or life within the tree arrow thing. Um, Zeus, and then you have Zeusamon, which was uh, a Greek version where they tried to assimilate Egyptian head god, Amon, into Zeus to say it was the same. The only reason I bring this up is because when we, when we talk about Revelation here in a bit, we're going to wonder where Jesus and John are getting this whole throne of Satan idea and talking about the altar of Zeus. But uh, Baal is a thunder god. Zeus was a thunder god. It kind of translates between, um, goes into Jupiter. There's these characteristics that define this lowercase g god who is in charge of all these other spiritual beings underneath him. And uh, they, Second Temple Judaism sees Baal as this figure, as this serpent, divine rebel figure. And um, then we get in Revelation, we see that Satan is equated with Zeus. When Jesus is talking to the church of Pergamum, he's talking about the throne of Satan that exists within Pergamum. For those of you that read that Pergamum chapter book that they did the book study of, uh, it was the altar of Zeus. It was one of the old wonders of the world. And people would go there to worship Zeus. And Jesus regards it as the throne of Satan. And so how this all plays out, I don't know. But it gets into your mind that this is a figure that wants to be above all else. That's kind of the point of why I'm going here. So it kind of fits with this whole rebel stars thing that's in Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, that harkens back to Genesis 3. I'm just making a case for this is the figure. Again, we can see similarities. We can see the, the horns on the head. So when you get that Satan horn figure, the horns are kind of 
kind of a thing. Whether or not he always appears like that, obviously he's appearing to humans, whatever shape or body, I don't know. He also appears as a snake in Genesis. Um, An interesting story, when Alexander the Great is conquering, he's going through, and he starts conquering the area that is Israel, and he starts spending time in the the Levant area. He, when he finds an altar of Baal, he actually stops and he worships at the altar of Baal and he tells people that this is my father. This is why we're doing it. Remember, Alexander the Great believed that he was the son of Zeus. And so when he would conquer, he'd stop at these altars of Baal and he would worship. And he said he was worshiping his father. Um, the ancient Near East is full of story. And when you start connecting things, some, some stuff makes sense. Um, side story, I've always wondered about the Sons of Thunder idea. Uh, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, and this is out of Luke 9, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem, talking about Jesus, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Some manuscripts add, as Elijah did. But he turned and rebuked them, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. James and John end up getting the nickname, the Sons of Thunder, which is also can be translated that, that Bonerges, that it was, a, it was a title given to two of the sons and daughters of Zeus, which I thought was this idea on playing on the thunder theme again. Um, remember that in the Old Testament, you have words for thunder, but oftentimes your words for lightning were, could be switched in and out with fire because they didn't really have this idea of electricity and what we would say lightning is. So they play that. Um, and so here we don't know, like, when Elijah calls down fire, he's going to battle against Baal, who was a lightning god, thunder god. And so it's Yahweh versus Baal. Who's going to send down and start that altar on fire? And it's, it's lightning. It's probably not a fireball, like people always say. It probably translates better lightning. So you have, like, the battle of, of this. And so it's interesting when he calls them that. It's not... Uh, it's not necessarily a great nickname, if that makes sense. I think it's hearkening back to this whole idea that they were ready to call down lightning and destroy a town because of their feelings. So just as a little tidbit on that. Um, a lot of people speculate that the brothers were twins also, which is why the nickname kind of stuck. Um, and it's, it's definitely, with, with Zeus, it was regarding Apollo and Artemis. And Apollo was at times called Apollyon, which in Revelation shows up. Um, so we have this idea of the serpent figure, this divine rebel. There's, there's not a lot where they just call him Satan in the Old Testament. Usually all the occurrences of Satan in the Old Testament are not personal names, but titles. Um, it comes from Hebrew Hasatan, which means the Satan. Uh, it actually translates as accuser or slanderer or adversary. Um, when you get to Job, you see that there seems to be a number of satans. And then if you get into Second Temple text, you see that they start referring to 
one of them as the Satan and his Satans, like multiples, like bad guys with him. Um, so what, what people will do, and this is one of the criticisms of the Bible, is they'll say that there's no, there's no real Satan figure in the Old Testament outright, and then all of a sudden it's Jesus versus Satan in the New Testament, and therefore things are made up, people aren't doing the correct translation stuff. Actually, it makes sense. If you read how they describe this figure in the Old Testament, you catch up a little bit with Second Temple Judaism thought, you see that it actually, it, it's coherent. It's, it's not a good criticism of the Old Testament to New Testament thing. Um, they do give the figure other names. Uh, they'll refer to him as the devil or Diablos, Belial, Mastema, Azazel. Uh, they give this figure another name. We refer to him primarily as Satan or the devil now. And we kind of take that from the New Testament wordings with it. Um, there are other beings that are named in some of the older texts, but they're not this figure. I think they're big baddies, but they're not this figure. And then Revelation 12 just kind of confirms it for us. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So at that point, this is the war that arises. It seems to be a war that arises with the birth of Christ. Um, If you read Revelation 12, you can get into the whole idea of, should I read Revelation chronologically? That's a whole separate thing. But that's where we get this connection of the ancient serpent with the great dragon who is Satan, the devil. Um. So that's our first figure that, that we hear about in the New Testament, that Jesus is like, beware of this. He is the enemy. The evil one is one of his titles, too. Um, we see Jesus dealing with demons. Now, where did the demons come from? Um, that's what we're going to kind of talk about. How did, the, how did the ancient Hebrews see demons? Like, where are these demons from? Why do they have the names that they're given? And... Um, And what we're going to look at next, we've talked about this before when we went through Genesis. Um, So again, I'm going to go through some of this quick, just laying out the groundwork for the enemies that are in the Bible. Uh, When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, this is Genesis 6, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention on the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Um, So there's this idea. These sons of God, 
Uh, we talked about the group of angelic beings called the sons of God last week. We talked about where they fit in, how they're mentioned in various points in the Bible. This idea that they're with God, hanging out with God, they're a council. Um, and that is the group. Daniel refers to the group, we believe, as the watchers. Uh, and kind of talk about that here. One of the criticisms, we can't really, like, this is a weekend its own if we were to f- just focus on this. But the idea is there are people that like, nah, sons of God actually means the sons of Israel. That doesn't work. Uh, they'll say it's the Sethite line. It's the sons of Seth. If the Bible wanted to say the sons of Seth, I think the author would have put sons of Seth. I believe in Holy Spirit to get it down right. Um, Jude mentions a group of angels here that sin harkens back to the days of the flood. Uh, This is Jude, starting with verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude is just, he's actually using direct language from the book of Enoch with eternal eternal chains under gloomy darkness um, until the judgment of the great day. Judgment of the great day is that end times, that when Jesus comes back and the judgment happens. Um, second Peter, Peter's actually going to mention the exact same thing in the same context as what Jude did. Uh, starting with Second Peter, and this is 2.4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus and commended them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until that day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So we know that Second Peter and Jude are written in the context of their writing against false prophets and false teachers. And so they're bringing in these as examples of people who are establishing their own authority and doing what they want um, as examples. And this is kind of a warning that if you're going to indulge in this, these are the examples. But what it does for us is it, it does put Genesis 6 in contact, context. We do know that they are some kind of spiritual beings that sinned and uh, came down. The book of Enoch is not in the Bible. It is a second temple Jewish text. And we don't really have to go through it. It, it, it takes the account. It was written about two centuries before Christ, from what we can see, the first book. There's many books of Enoch. And they get crazy. So there's the one that's, that's, that's written during the second temple time, which seems to be the one that Peter and Jude are alluding to. And at times, Jesus actually has a few quotes from it. Um, but there are multiple books of Enoch. 
and it's kind of nuts, uh, the other ones. And they're, they're like post, they're actually post-Christ. Most of them are written. Um, so First Enoch is the only one that people really look to for that second temple context. Um, a, lot of, a lot of data, I know. He just goes into the fact, whoever is the author of Enoch, goes into the fact that these beings did do what it seems to do, gives a little more example of it. And we're, the only reason we're kind of sitting here is because we now know that there is this group, there's this bad group of sons of God who did what they did, and we know that they are in a pit, in an abyss, Tartarus, if you will. Tartarus is the Greek word for this abyss. It's the, it's the word that Peter uses. It's the word for this abyss where they kept the, the evil titans, those that were rebellious. If you know your Greek mythology, he brings Greek mythology into it a little bit, talking about the titans being stuck in Tartarus. So there's this group in the pit. Does anyone know where else the group in the pit comes up next? There we go, Revelation 9. This is where we get into this group in the pit again. It's a concept, and this is part of the end days play out. Someday we'll try to go through Revelation, but again, it's, it is what it is. It's important, but it's, it's a lot. Revelation 9.9, 9, the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. What do we think the star was now that we know the context of their worldview? Could be Satan. Yep, the spiritual being. The star fell to the earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the pot bottomless pit. So here we're faced with that bottomless pit again. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft arose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of the scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant of the trees, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings were like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Then they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Apollyon, again, can be referenced as Apollo, who was the son of Zeus. Um, so, again, just this idea that these are spiritual. What some people will do is they look at this and they're like, well, sounds to me like they're describing helicopters. And um, I, I, it looks to me like if I read the Bible as the Bible in context of the Bible, it seems like they're just describing spiritual creatures. And sometimes we like to insert our worldview into something that wasn't written in our worldview. Um, seem like crazy spiritual creatures, just like the ones we talked about last week. Just different. These ones look ferocious and maybe like evil versions of those living creatures. So I don't know. Again, it's revelation. I don't think we fully grasp. But just this idea that there is a pit with these things in it, evidently they're going to come back. Um, if not, have already come back. I don't know. Depends on how you read Revelation. So, going back to that word Nephilim. 
Nephilim in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that they use during New Testament times, uh, they translate Nephilim as the giants. Um, some people like to go back and try to translate it as the fallen ones. Um, could have like a, a, double, a double meaning. It could work. They could be fallen ones and be giants. Like it, it doesn't. I'm just saying the Bible that was being read during the time, uh, the Septuagint refers to them as giants. And we still have those texts we can go see. Um, so the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, talking about Genesis 4, and then also afterwards, people get stuck on the afterwards part too. But we know in the Old Testament, there seems to be more giants because they have to take care of the giants when they go into the promised land. Moses is a giant killer. Joshua is a giant killer. David is a giant killer. Um, and actually, it seems like in different parts, there's this war amongst themselves too that the Bible talks about. Uh, so there's speculation on these giant creatures, the ones that are after the flood too, because the flood destroys the first wave. Um, some spiritual beings fall and still make the same choice later. We talked about the fact that spiritual beings have free will. Some may still fall. I don't know. Uh, maybe all that fell have already fallen. Maybe some choose to still. I don't know. I don't understand why when you get to be in the presence of Yahweh, you make the choices that you make, um, but they do. And some people think that Noah was pure, but possibly that his wife or sons carried the genes from the bad stuff before the flood. And then some people like to say that the flood was regional in nature and only covered the Middle East area. And again, I, I tend to believe the fact that it says, and also afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of man, it makes me think that maybe it was a repetitious thing. Um, why are we talking about the giant clowns? Because we're making a case right now for demons. We had to go through their fathers who are in a pit. We're going to get released. Um, but now we've got to get to the giant clans. And the idea, the Bible uses different tribes to represent the giants. Um, the one I want to spend the most time on, though, is Rephaim, because that gets used throughout the entire New Testament, or the entire Old Testament in different ways. It can refer to giant clans. It can refer to shades or ghosts. It can refer directly to what we would consider demons when they use the word. Um, and here's a list of giant clans. Um, the Amorites were Mesopotamian culture. The only reason I mention them is because Abraham, we just had that whole thing with Abraham. Abraham is, he's, he's interacting with the Amorites. Um, Deuteronomy 2 and 3 say that they are counted as the Rephaim. Gives them this connection back to these, these bad people. Um, they eventually all get destroyed. David has to clean up. Joshua does everything that he is told to do in the boundaries that he's told to do it. And then David comes in later, and David plays cleanup. And of course, we get Goliath, who was a leftover from one of these tribes that were destroyed by Joshua that went up to the coast and lived. The Bible tells us that. He has giant brothers. Um, something in the genetic line? I don't know. It's weird. But here's the issue. With Raphaim, the meeting is, is disputed. We see them as giants in the Old Testament, but the root word is interesting because it's not necessarily a root Hebrew word. We talked about borrowed or loan words a little bit last week. Rephaim is a loaned words. We believe it comes from the Ugaritic text. We see it in there. And the origin means dead spirit kings is what it translates to. Uh, the Bible also references them to as the name of the spirits that are in Sheol. 
This begins to paint a picture of leftover Nephilim spirits without needing to extract from First Enoch. And the reason we don't extract from First Enoch is because it's not scripture, but we can at least get, we can get knowledge from it. It's not the same. Just want to make that clear. Every time I do this, I have to say this. Um, First Enoch is very, um, we'll read through this because this is just going to give us the idea. And to Gabriel, he, God said, go Gabriel to the bastards, to the half-breeds. Why are they bastards? They are fatherless. Yeah, that is the definition of bastard, right? So what, what he's already making, they, they don't have a real earthly father. They have these spiritual being fathers. Their fathers are going to be locked up. You are now fatherless. To the half-breeds, why is half-breed especially bad when you're reading this as a Jew? Mixed. It's that whole pro- prohibition of this mixed. Remember how a lot of the Jews, when you read their laws, you can't, certain things aren't supposed to mix. And so that's where we get it. These spiritual beings were not supposed to mix with the humans. Uh, and to the sons of miscegenation, I don't even know what that word is, and destroy the son of the watchers from among the sons of the men. Send them against each other in war and destruction. So this is what he's ordering Gabriel to do. In length of days they will not have, and no petition will be granted to their fathers in their behalf, for they should expect to live an eternal life. Nor even that each of them should live 500 years. And to Michael he said, Go, Michael, bind Shemiazah and the others with him who have united themselves with the daughters of men, so that they were defiled by them in their uncleanness. And when their sons perish and they see the destruction of the beloved ones, Bind them for 70 generations in the valleys of the earth until the days of their release, which in Revelation. First Enoch 15, go and say to the watchers of heaven who sent you to petition on their behalf. He's talking to Enoch now. You should petition in behalf of men and not men in behalf of you. Why have you forsaken the high heaven, the eternal sanctuary, and lain with women, and defiled yourselves with the daughters of men, and taken for yourselves wives, and done as the sons of earth? And begotten for yourselves sons, giants. But now the giants who are begotten by the spirits and flesh, they, talking humans, will call them evil spirits upon the earth, for their dwelling will be upon the earth. The spirits that have gone forth from the body of their flesh are evil spirits, for from humans they came into being, and from the holy watchers was the origin of their creation. Evil spirits they will be on the earth, and evil spirits they will be called." The spirits of heaven, in heaven is their dwelling, but the spirits begotten on earth, on earth is their dwelling. And the spirits of the giants lead astray and do violence and make war. Um, as a, just an archaeological note, I like to show this. Uh, this is in what would now be what we would call the West Bank, up in that area of Israel. This is the... Regime al-Hiri is the Arabic name that they titled it, but its Hebrew name was Gilgal Raphim, which means the wheel of spirits or the wheel of giants. You can actually go visit this in Israel. Probably not the time to go visit it in Israel. But you can go visit this. Um, you can see that little, uh, the little brown figure right there is a cow. So that gives you a size comparison of this. It's, it's pretty gigantic. And what it is, is they've done archaeological digs around it. Um, there's tombs. It's tombs all the way around and the, the concentric circles with the tomb in the middle. And it seems to be royalty. It's that whole idea of that Raphaim, these spirit kings. And uh, other people refer to it as the, the wheel of ghosts in the area and they just kind of stay away from the area. Um, it's up. 
It's actually, you can, if you look at this, you can see Mount Hermon in the background from it, which is, Bashan is that bad area in the Bible that people talk about. So this is the idea. The idea is, is that the demons in the New Testament are the leftover spirits of the children of the sons of God that came down with, with women. Uh, nowhere in the Old Testament, and this is true, this is a criticism of it, but nowhere in the Old Testament is, do you see anything about um, a falling of angels? It's just not mentioned in the Old Testament. And so Second Temple Jews view the demons. In the Second Temple, by Second Temple Jews, I'm talking about the disciples and other apostles. They're coming into it with that view. And we know from Jude and we know from Peter that that's their view. Now, that's not to say that there are not demonic creatures outside of this. They're just saying these things that Jesus is kicking out. That's why Jesus uses words like unclean spirit. The unclean spirit doesn't really have anything to do with a cleanliness idea. It has to do with the mixed, it's a mixed spirit. Does that make sense? So when you look at that word unclean in there, it's not like a, it's not like a ceremonial uncleanness, though it would be ceremonial unclean. It really has to do with that mixed, the mixed vibe of that. And so these are actually, some people regard demons and they try to do this whole hierarchy of demons and they make demons this whole thing. These are leftover spirits that are stuck here until the lake of fire. If you go through Enoch, Enoch will mention their ultimate fate is in the lake of fire. Um, they can't, they can't traverse. They are, they are earthly things. It's not like they zip to the spiritual realm is what they're saying. They're stuck here. They're stuck in this realm, however that works. Um, so that's the idea of it. Jesus goes around when he, when he, you know, he goes and he, he goes up against Legion. Legion already knows his fate. And we always wondered why, what Legion meant by like, have you come early to kick us out and send us? That's what he's questioning Jesus with. And Jesus is like, it's not that time yet. The time that he's talking about is that lake of fire time. These guys are like, oh my goodness, this is the son of God. This is Yahweh in flesh. Come to earth. Is it our time for the fire? That's, that's what's going through Legion's mind is the destruction that he faces in the future. Um, so you have, you have a serpent figure. You have these demons that are left over from whatever this Genesis 6 event was. You have a group of, of, we can call them angels, but we'll just call them divine beings that are stuck in a pit, which we know about as referenced different times and in Revelation. And then we also have to wonder, where do we get this idea for Paul with using prince, principalities and powers, rulers, thrones? Um, we'll finish up with this. We just covered Tower of Babel, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Psalm 82 talks about this idea. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, and this is Yahweh speaking, you are God's. Sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. I just like to emphasize the arise because that word actually is the same word in the Septuagint that gets translated as resurrection, as resurrect. 
resurrect, O God, judge the earth. So it's that. It's kind of fun because when Jesus does resurrect, he does judge these spirits. Deuteronomy 4.19, going back with Moses here. And Moses is warning them, and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and stars, all the hosts of heaven, you may be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole of heaven. But the Lord has taken you, brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Jacob, again, is Yahweh's portion. Deuteronomy 32.4. The rock, God, his word is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and a twisted generation. This is Moses talking about the current Hebrews that he's without in the desert, the ones that were not allowed to see the promised land. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember that Abraham had to have the miracle to have his kids. So that's what they're referencing here. God did create them. Not God creating them in the sense of God creating humanity, but God created specifically the line of Abraham. Is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. Okay, going forward. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me. This is, we're jumping to Daniel real quick. Again, just trying to be quick. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. And then he said, do you, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these, against these except Michael, your prince. So here's the idea. Of the, we, we get the word prince, and we start identifying these princes of countries. So going back to this, the question is, when did God divide mankind? What is Moses referring to? Tower of Babel, right? The division of mankind happens at the Tower of Babel, which is why he's talking about Moses' fathers and his elders, remembering the days. Uh, we don't really know, based on Psalm 82, we don't really know. We're unsure when the powers and principalities fell. We know by the time of Moses' father's people, uh, those rulers over nations were fallen. Uh, they set up shop. The Tower of Babel event leaves us a list of nations. When you read the Tower of Babel event, the event is God talking amongst his council, the reference of us and going down and seeing what the humans are doing. And then Moses is referring to the split up of the nations and the putting of these leaders, spiritual leaders over nations. God didn't do that to punish them in the fact that these are bad leaders. These, these leaders also fall at some point. They desire worship for themselves. Um, note that when Jesus specifically sends out people, 
to go preach. He's also sending out, depending on your manuscript, 70 or 72. Uh, And when he sends out the 72, representing sending out to the nations, um, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. So right there, you know that there is already this taking back of the nations. Remember, Jesus, the quote that Jesus is, he will inherit the nations. Israel was Yahweh's portion. It was separate and created with a purpose, the start of the rescue plan to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Uh, There are other speculations that people have for other figures that we fight against in the spiritual, but then you just get into people speculating and you get into some second temple texts that don't have any relevancy with stuff that we see in the Bible. Not saying that they're not true. There might be truth in them. I don't know, but I can't. If I can't make a case with the Bible, I'm just not going to do it. Uh, We do have questions about the thrones, Paul's reference to thrones, and knowing that thrones is a specific being in the Bible. Um, I don't know what to do with that, though. That's all we know. If God wanted us to know, I guess we'd know. Uh, And then Paul refers to the elemental spirits in Galatians, and not entirely sure what the elemental spirits. Second Temple Jews have an idea on what the elemental spirits are, but this is the only time that we see it in the Bible, and so I'm not going to do any conjecture. Here's what I hope. After all of this today, we know that there is an adversary who seems to want to be God. I think we can firmly say that. We call him Satan, the devil, whatever you want to call him for a title, the evil one. He would like to be the most high. We know that there are demons on the earth. We know that Jesus was here kicking butt. We know that Jesus was dealing with them and basically swatting them away at that point. Not a lot of power going on there. Um, We know that there are these princes and principalities. Paul refers to them multiple places. We could just spend a day just on princes and principalities and Paul's understanding of the spiritual world. But we also know that Jesus, in his resurrection, inherited the nations. He sits at the right hand of God. He is an authority now. He has authority over all of those other authorities that were placed on earth. Um, we know that there is continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament beliefs, the existence of the residents of the supernatural world. This is one of the criticisms that you'll run into when you start talking to people about this. And one of the criticisms they bring for the Bible is they like to say that the worldview is completely different in both halves. It's just not. We can see a general but consistent view in the nature of such beings. We understand the belief in the supremacy of Yahweh over all created beings from the very start of the Torah until the last page of Revelation. There is a delegated power given to those in the spiritual realm. We don't understand how that works, but there are spiritual powers. It's referred to. Humans have interacted with this whole cast of characters, good and bad, since Eden. So last week, good guys. This week, bad guys. I think we've made a case that these things exist. I think if you believe, if if you're not into the Bible, and if you don't believe the Bible is the truth and inspired by the Holy Spirit, then this stuff won't matter to you. Um, And it could just be conjecture to you. So, where I would go next week is, how then do we live? That's the idea. We've learned this stuff. How does this affect us biblically? How then do we live? What's the current context of the state of this after the resurrection of Jesus? That's kind of where we're going to get an idea of the spiritual world. What is permissible? What's not permissible? We've already talked about we don't go around commanding angels because there's nothing in the Bible that tells us to go around commanding angels. I see people in the charismatic world, Pentecostal world. I've been to the conferences where they're trying to command angels. I don't, I don't know where it says to do that. Yahweh seems to command angels. Jesus commands angels because he is Yahweh. 
Um, but just things that we don't need to participate in, we need to be careful of. Next week, we're going to talk about that. So a little dry today. Hopefully, though, I've made a case that these, biblical, these are biblical ideas. And there's a lot to this. You could spend, again, remember a lot of people that go to seminary who get their PhDs, if they don't study directly this, they talk about having like one course hour in this. One hour out of a week that they spent just talking about this stuff because it's neglected. Um, That's where I'm at. Hopefully we've got that. Next week, I want to talk about how this affects us, what we need to do. Um, And with that, I think we're going to pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability to study your word. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would help us as we wrestle with ideas and we look at things as we dive into what you have for us. Help us to throw off things that are just taught to us out of tradition. Help us to throw off things that um, might have even added layers of fear in our life that don't need to be there. Um, And Jesus, I just ask that that you would show us um, in your ways what you've done also to all of these powers and all of this cast of characters that we're faced with. And Lord, just as we study more about what you've done, I just ask that it would become real for us, that we would understand inside us, Lord, that, that you, have, you have done it, and we can live in the fact that you have done it, and we can fight as if you have done it, and that we don't have any, any questions about what we face and what you can do. And so we just thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you that, that you have taken back to the nations, that you have brought us back in, that you've, you've ripped those princes and principalities off their thrones, that at this point they're just raging in vain, like the Bible says. We just, Jesus, I'm just very thankful. Very thankful for that. And just be with us as we go out this week. Help us as we go out and we see the imagery around us and the, the grossness that gets propped up here in the last couple of weeks of October. And just help us to keep our eyes on you, Holy Spirit, and what you're doing, your true physical work that you're doing also during this time. We love you, Lord. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen.